what if our foreign policy of the past century is deeply flawed and has not served our national security interest? What if we wake up one day and realize that the terrorist threat is the predictable consequence of our meddling in the affairs of others and has nothing to do with us being free and prosperous? What if it is finally realized that war and military spending is always destructive to the economy? What if all wartime spending is paid for through the deceitful and evil process of inflating and borrowing? What if we finally realize that wartime conditions always undermine personal liberty? What if conservatives who preach small government wake up and realize that our interventionalist foreign policy provides the greatest incentive to expand the government? What if conservatives understood once again that their only logical position is to reject military intervention and managing an empire throughout the world? What if the American people woke up and understood that the official reasons for going to war are almost always based on lies and promoted by war propaganda in order to serve special interests? What if we as a nation came to realize that the quest for empire eventually destroys all great nations? What if a military draft is being planned for the wars that would spread if our foreign policy is not changed? What if the American people learned the truth that our foreign policy has nothing to do with national security, that it never changes from one administration to the next? What if war, in preparation for war, is a racket serving the special interests? What if Christianity actually teaches peace and not preventative wars of aggression? What if diplomacy is found to be superior to bombs and bribes in protecting America? What happens if my concerns are completely unfounded? Nothing. But what happens if my concerns are justified and ignored? Nothing good. Juan Paul. Hey, y'all, and welcome back to another episode of Court is in Session. I, of course, am Court Culver. That's where the name comes from, my little pun there that I'm very proud of. And today I have a new guest on. His name is Patrick Murray, a good friend of mine from college. And he is a lot more educated on the subject of foreign policy than I am. Um, I will freely admit that the foreign policy is not my strong suit whatsoever. Uh, however, I do want to say that um, I take an aggressively non-interventionalist approach to foreign policy. This may come from me being a post-9-11 person. I was born before 9-11, but I believe I was four at the time. Um, and I don't know what the feeling was uh, around terrorism post 9-11. What I do know is that looking on uh, just now for the past few years, like understanding what's going on in the world, it seems like that feeling of fear that every American felt has been exploited by politicians in order to go to war more often. Um, I saw this when I was, uh, I had the opportunity to go to Guantanamo Bay and witness a military tribunal. And while I was there, it frankly seemed like they didn't have any good proof, uh, evidence against the person that they had incarcerated for about 20 years. Um, this was for a terrorist incident in 2000, I believe. So they've had him there for over 20 years. And they were just kind of throwing these ridiculous procedural issues out um, to make it go as slowly as possible because he didn't have a writ to habeas corpus, uh, the right to a writ of habeas corpus. Uh, so they pretty much could keep him there without cause for as long as they wanted. As well, it seems like we're set, we've been sending American lives abroad uh, to, quote, fight for our freedom, and it seems like people are dying for no discernible reason. Hence, Afghanistan, which we left, and we left 
millions of dollars worth of high-tech military equipment. We had been there for 20 years. It cost over a trillion dollars. And at the end of the day, absolutely nothing had changed. So when I look on at what is going on with Russia and Ukraine as of late, uh, I can't help but worry that we are going down the same path. And that is kind of the stance that I took in my conversation with Mr. Murray. Um, Mr. Murray is far more eloquent than I am. He definitely made me consider issues that I would not have considered uh, if I hadn't talked to him. Uh, but I still think I hold the beliefs that I do. And I'm sure that I didn't uh, convince him either. And that is what good conversation is all about. So without further, further ado, I am uh, happy to introduce Patrick Murray. And I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Just in 30 seconds or... Um, just in really broad terms, can you explain what is going on uh, with Ukraine and Russia right now? Yes. So Russia is, you know, aligning a lot of its troops and is deploying a lot of troops and military equipment across the eastern flank of Ukraine. They are very upset with Ukraine right now. They do not want Ukraine to be a part. Well, there's actually two reasons. So the first reason they want to invade is Russia does not want Ukraine to be part of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, number one. Number two, Russia not only does not want that, Russia, um, Russia, is, Russia still believes that there's a lot of conflict still going on there since the 2014 invasion of Crimea. Um, so I'm just looking for more uh, information. Sorry about that. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, another reason is, you know, Russia wants military activities that NATO provides to be limited to states like Poland and things like that. So first one, to sum up, Russia does not want Ukraine to be part of NATO, and they want NATO's military activities to be limited to countries like Poland. And because they feel that, you know, NATO is not respecting what they want, Russia that is, they're going to potentially invade, which we have had intelligence of them invading for quite some time, probably the past couple of months. So it's no surprise here. You know, I think what's interesting is, you know, Ukraine has been going back and forth the past many years about should we join NATO? Should we not join NATO? You know, what does the Kremlin think? You know, what does Kiev think? You know, but in the end, I feel like when Russia does finally pull back, you know, I think Ukraine will become a part of NATO. I don't think any time in the near future, but I do believe it should become a part of NATO. It's already a part of an organization, not an organization, a sub program within NATO called the Partnership for Peace, which is a program in NATO that basically says any post-Soviet bloc country that is not exactly a member of NATO can still have a say in, in NATO and they get to decide their own progress. The only thing that's different with the Partnership for Peace program that Ukraine is a part of, by the way, Russia is not involved in any of this, <laughs> obviously, with NATO or the Partnership for Peace. Ukraine does not get the defensive apparatus. It does. It, it, if Ukraine needs help, it, individual countries can help them. But NATO is not obligated to defend Ukraine militarily. So that's why this is such a crisis, because had Ukraine had NATO membership, Ukraine could could authorize, you know, and other countries that are member states of NATO could go in and get involved militarily should they so choose. The problem is they are not a part of NATO, so that cannot happen. And as a result, it's very obvious here that if Russia does invade, it would be a Russian victory, clearly. Ukraine is a smaller country, you know, and the interesting thing about Ukraine, too, people don't really know this. You know, we here in the United States, you know, we always hear, excuse me, we always hear, you know, Putin bad, right? Over in, right. in Russia, they love, they love Putin. They love him. They see him as a strong man who is, who is there. He's been in office since 2000. You know, he, they see him as their savior, you know, because, you know, Putin came to office in 2000 right after the 90s. And the 90s were a very tumultuous time for Russia. So what is this? So why is this tied into what I'm talking about? This is tied in because they still see him that way. But so do many Ukrainians. 
you know, when, when Ukraine, you know, detached itself from the Soviet Union in 1991, it brought with it, you know, about, um, about 30% of Ukrainians speak Russian because obviously it's a former Russian state. And that means about since 30% speak Russian, that's about 14 million people, right? So 67% of Ukrainians obviously speak Ukrainian, but, you know, a lot of Russians still live there. So it's kind of a problem too, because Ukraine doesn't want to rile up its its pro-Russian Ukrainian citizens. They don't want they don't want that. So it's it's a, it's a difficult situation for Ukraine, and it's an easier situation for Russia if they want to invade. It would give Russia more justification. Not that their invasion would be justified, you know, but it, it's it is a much more difficult situation. And especially here in the United States, we don't really see it through the lens of, you know, how they see things. We just see it as how is this in relation to the United States and what does it mean for us? So Sorry, let that me, was a little long. No, 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 that was, that was absolutely perfect in what I was looking for. But let me ask you a question. So you, you, you're a proponent of, of the Ukraine uh, being given membership into NATO, and that would give them easier access to uh be able to call for military intervention um in yes. uh yes um so if, if there was an invasion so my first question is if there's already a significant constituency in Ukraine that is pro putin um and you know worst case scenario russia does invade and is able, able to take over putin uh with without sounding cold why first of all is that such a bad thing and a bad thing to the point where we in the United States need to be spending a lot of money on this because we are by far the largest funder of NATO, if I'm not mistaken, of the NATO member countries. Well, I mean, there's, there's a few moving parts to this, right? So the reason like your question really is, is why does the United, why should the U S care? What do we have yeah. a stake? What stake do we have in this? So Russia is an important adversary. I know very interesting way to say that. But it's an important adversary because Russia, you know, sells a lot of its nuclear weapons and other types of anti-ballistic, you know, I guess, ballistic missile systems to China. So why does that matter? Russia is an exporter of, of weaponry to other countries. And the other, that's the first thing. So Russia has plenty of leverage is what that means. It also has leverage with Nord Stream 2. And I will get to that in a second with, Nord, with the Nord Stream pipeline. The other problem is we would we think in the U.S. that Europe is, is going to gather together like they, you know, they, they usually do because they did during the first and second world wars, that Europe is going to gather together, rally behind Ukraine, and they're going to they're going to save Ukraine. Right. That's what we think. That's not the case. And the reason that's not the case is because Germany, which is an interesting ally, I call it a two faced ally because it is. Germany has is doing business with Russia and they don't want to they don't want any escalating tensions with the Kremlin. So Germany, which is the largest economy in all of Europe, not just Western Europe, all of Europe, even bigger than Great Britain. They are the largest economy in Europe. They spend about 1.57 percent of their of their GDP on defense. They should be at two percent. Under President Trump, it was nearing 2%. It's had an increase of about a little over 3%, but they're still not there. It's 3.2% actually. So Germany spends about $64 billion on NATO spending. So Germany clearly, if they wanted to help, could help Ukraine. They're just not going to. But the reason that that's also an issue, and why does that matter to us, and why should we have a stake in this, whether it be diplomatically, economically, or militarily, is because Ukraine does not have many allies to begin with. It's not a part of NATO. It doesn't, Germany doesn't want to help it. And not only that, Germany is actively working and they are working against Ukraine. Germany has scolded and they have told Bulgaria and Estonia, which by the way are Cyrillic language speaking countries. And Cyrillic is obviously the language, you know, it's what they use in Russia. Yeah. So, they told these NATO, these, these, these countries, these post-Soviet countries, Bulgaria, Estonia, don't get involved, don't send military aid, no economic, no diplomacy, no anything. 
Germany has leverage in that sense. Germany is is the biggest funder of NATO aside from the United States. I mean, the biggest funder in Europe, that is. So Germany has plenty of money, plenty of resources to help Ukraine, but they're actively, you know, working against that. And they're actively, you know, telling these countries not to get involved. Now, that is a that is a big deal because Ukraine is then left with what? I mean, they're left with Britain and France, you know, wanting to help them. The other countries in Europe aren't very big. They don't, you know, economically, they don't contribute a lot in, in NATO defense spending. So Ukraine doesn't have a lot of help to begin with. You know, in Germany does business with Russia. I mean, do you mind if I just go a little bit into the Nord Stream pipeline and why this is, is a uh, this is a big deal? This is part of what we're talking about. Um, Feel free. Yeah, so Nord Stream 2 pipeline is a Russian state-backed energy giant. It's a company, you know, in Western Siberia, in Russia. And they have a, they have a huge stake in German relations because they produce about 110, not 110, sorry, excuse me. They produce about 55 billion cubic meters of natural gas per year to Germany. That's just in the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, which was completed in 2012. Nord Stream 2 which was, you know, 90 to 95% complete the middle of last year, could become operational at any minute once the, the governments in Europe allowed, allow it to do so. Because also, by the way, those countries allowed the permits to go forward with the, uh, with the pipeline. Russia is doing business in regards to this pipeline with Germany. And Germany is, that's, that's a big reason Germany does not want escalating tensions with the Kremlin. That's why they do not want to get involved in Ukraine. They, because, you, you know, Germany looks at it from what's in it for me, which is a very selfish way to look at it from their perspective. You know, you would, you know, it, you would think that with, you know, the history behind Germany over the past, you know, 100 years, the 20th century, you would think Germany would, would come to the help of one of the, you know, the most vulnerable post-Soviet states of the Eastern Bloc. And they're not going to. The pipeline is important because the pipeline is about $11 billion. Um, the pipeline is a way that Germany can use leverage. I mean, well, it's also for Russia to use leverage, honestly, if you really want to be particular about this. And the pipeline produces about, in total, if both pipelines were fully operational, it would produce about 110 billion cubic meters of natural gas a year. And by the way, the countries that gave the permits, they greenlighted the permits for the pipeline to go forward, were all members of the Paris Climate Accords. In case everyone, anyone's listening, I'm going to say that again. Finland, Sweden, Denmark, and Germany are all members of the Paris Climate Accords, and they still greenlighted a natural gas pipeline that goes about 760 miles below the Baltic Sea. So when we want to talk about countries that care about, you know, climate change, that's pretty questionable here, isn't it? You know, um, most of the work in, from Nord Stream 2 was done in Denmark near the end of its construction. So Denmark, you know, spent a lot of money and uh, gave the last permits to it. You know, Nord, Nord Stream is a big deal because the U.S. Senate voted down Senator Ted Cruz of Texas's bill to to reimpose actually sanctions on you know the pipeline, which which basically implies that you know President Biden, you know last year, you know President Biden last year reduced sanctions on the pipeline. So nobody, a lot of people don't know that, you know. And President Biden's you know justification was we want warm relations with Berlin even if it means at the expense of security in Ukraine. And the United States also backtracked on whether they'd support, you know, you know, the, the, the military forces in Ukraine, you know, it, and that really shows what is the United States' real commitment to Ukrainian security. You know, they're willing to reduce sanctions on an authoritarian power. You know, by the way, we, you know, President Trump imposed a lot of sanctions on Russia during his presidency, his four years in office. 
He imposed a lot of sanctions, not just on Russian oligarchs, on the pipeline. Biden comes into office January of 2021. By May of last year, you know, just five months into office, he removes those sanctions. So the, the sanctions man are gone. Uh, the man who's going to look Putin in the eye and see the evil and be, be tough on him. Yeah, I mean, he was so tough that, he, you, know, you know, in the middle of the night, he removes those sanctions. Because he cares more about what, Ber- what Berlin thinks of Washington than what Kiev is doing and what Kiev should be doing. And, you know, a big deal. So, by the way, politics doesn't go away from this. Another reason the German government is in cahoots with Moscow is because the new chancellor, Olaf Scholz, is a member of the Social Democratic Party. Now, but why, why does that matter? Because a lot of his voters rely on the natural gas to heat their homes in Germany. He doesn't want to lose those voters. So even in German politics, international European politics, the politics plays a role. Politicians don't want to lose, you know, their hold on power. The pipeline in Nord Stream 1, as of right now, Nord Stream 1 heats, you know, the natural gas that goes through the first Nord Stream pipeline, you know, gives, you know, heat, you know, heat because it gets cold in the winter in, in Europe, very cold because it's, you know, very close to the Arctic Circle. It heats about 26 million homes, 26 million you know, homes. I mean, that's millions of people in Germany that rely on Russian natural gas. You know, and Germany, by the way, doesn't need to rely on, on Russian gas. That's the, that's the interesting part. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is um, a lot of countries in Europe already are more than able to, to help Germany get gas. And many of those countries are Norway, the Netherlands, Great Britain, and Denmark. Denmark is the country directly north of Germany. It literally touches it. There's no river. There's no ocean that divides them two. So there's, there's no reason that Germany should be getting any oil from Moscow. They don't need to. And neither does, do the other European countries that get this natural gas. Now, you know, we also have a stake in this, the U.S., that is, because Poland is a is being used as a, as a as a as a transit country for many for much of the oil and the supplies that go through that area, and if we were to halt the project, if we were to like you know discontinue Nord Stream two, and we were to discontinue Nord Stream one, and we were to not even allow Nord Stream two to become operational, they would lose about one point eight billion in euros a year in transit fees as well. So. In my personal opinion, to sum up, a lot of people see this at the standpoint that Ukraine good, Russia bad. I look at it at the standpoint, Ukraine good, Russia, Russia bad, Europe stupid. That's how I see it. Europe, European countries for years have been relying on Russian gas, you know, natural gas and other energy resources. They don't have to. They have plenty. They have, abun- they have an abundance of resources already. So now we're in a situation, you know, where Russia has already invaded Ukraine, you know, back in 2014 under President Obama. He was weak on Russia. We all remember that. Now, President Biden is playing the same, you know, playing, playing the same game here. He's weak. The president is weak. Our secretary of state, you know, went into negotiations, Antony Blinken. And the negotiations to reach a diplomatic settlement completely fell apart. And that is why the Biden administration is now considering sending 8,500 you know, U.S. troops on the ground. Whether that's going to work, I don't know. I hope we don't, we don't really have to do that. That's what they're considering at the moment, though. What do you think would be the, the long-term effects of something like this? Because if we committed uh, either through NATO or through U.S. troops, uh, to to protecting Ukraine against invasion. I mean, if we do it the once and we're able and Putin backs off, you know, that's not going to be the end of it. Putin's been wanting the been wanting Ukraine for years. I it's almost as if he, Russia considers it. I'm sorry. He he's been wanting it since the end of the Cold War. I mean, you know, we got to remember who Putin is. I mean, he's a he's a former KGB officer, part of the secret police. Not only that, 
Putin is still under the impression, and he really believes this and believes this notion, as many Russians do, that the Soviet Union and its collapse was the biggest crime of the 20th century. So yeah. they don't see Ukraine as a legitimate country. They still see it as a part of the, of, of the Russian Empire. So and my question very archaic way of thinking. My wow. question is though, would we be committing ourselves to another twenty years of troops in the Ukraine um kinda just half heartedly fighting and it'd be like another Afghanistan situation? Because it seems that any time we try to involve ourselves militarily to try to become the heroes for these, uh, you know, democracies or these good countries, that we don't do a very good job and it just winds up being a multi-trillion dollar bath that we take. And I worry that, that we do the same. That's my major concern with Ukraine right now is that we commit ourselves to, to being the heroes for Ukraine. And we do a terrible job at it, and it winds up, you know, like I said, us being there for multiple decades and it costing $2 trillion, and at the end of the day, you know, getting nothing done. Do you see that? Am I missing something? Or uh, do you? does that concern you, or do you think it's it's different than, than fighting over in a place like Afghanistan? Because it's, cause it's, you know, it's it's Europe, which, which we tend to do better in, in wars in Europe than in like the Middle East, which is kind of, which is a powder keg in and of itself. And, you know, we're ta- those are conflicts that are thousands of years old. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, I don't think it's going to become an Afghanistan type situation. You know, I mean, there's there's so many solutions to this, right? You know, one solution I've already mentioned is NATO should offer a membership again to Ukraine and Ukraine should just accept it. Does that mean it's possible that Russia is going to get angry? Absolutely. But, you know, I think here's another solution to this as well. Now, Ukraine is already a kind of a part of NATO. They just don't get the defense part. Russia should be allowed to join what's called the Partnership for Peace as well. So what that basically would mean is while Russia will not get the military defensive, you know, part of NATO, they would have a seat at the table at Euro- on European affairs. They'd be able to help make decisions. And the reason I say that is because you have to talk to your adversaries as much as you do your allies, right? Because getting your allies to the table on anything is easy. It's getting your adversaries that's ma- that matters. I mean, if you want to, you know, you know, get a peaceful, you know, get a peaceful solution, you know, that that's how you that's how you reach that. Now, that's what I think, you know, should happen. Ukraine should be part of NATO, allow Russia in as well, um, with the partnership for peace, and just forget what Berlin, what the Berlin government thinks. Now, I think that if the NATO countries that are already there spend more money, they increase the money that they've already spent on NATO defense spending, they increase money, they send more weapons themselves to Ukraine, and they show that they can be diplomatic and militarily helpful in this regard, I think the U.S. would not have to get involved, you know, to a large degree. But the reason I'm saying the U.S. should get involved to a certain degree is because Europe, European countries have you know they like to play this game that they care about what's going on in Ukraine. They don't really. Germany is showing they don't care. I mean, we got the smaller countries that that don't spend enough on NATO defense and they don't even have a large economy to begin with, let alone spending money on their own, you know, national defenses. They don't have enough money and resources to send to Ukraine themselves. But if if, if the NATO member states get involved, you know, and they increase their own spending on, on defense, this wouldn't be been that much of a problem. You see what I'm saying? You know, yeah. I don't think U.S. troops are going to be required. I think we should only send U.S. troops if the diplomatic negotiations, which have already failed, failed. I think we should only do it if Europe does not set, doesn't stand up. The European countries of Western and Central Europe, especially Germany. And the fact is right now, they're not. And a lot of, you know, I think Britain is sending, it's sending, you know, I think diplomatic and economic aid. They're trying to, you know, aid the the Eastern Ukrainian forces. And the United States is currently thinking of the same thing. But I don't think it would be like Afghanistan either, because the Middle East is different in, in that way. 
because the Middle East is not really a part of, you know, an organization, a regional organization like NATO. Because now remember, NATO is really a European, you know, organization. NATO specifically was designed to counter Soviet aggression. Well, the problem with NATO now is that the world has is very different since 1991. The Cold War is over. The Soviet Union is no more. We live in the age of, we live in a post 9-11 era. This is what I call it. The Cold War, in my personal opinion, it, it ended in, on September 11, 2001. That's when it ended. Because we live in the era of, of more modernized technology. We live in the era of, of you know, hypersonic, you know, nuclear weapons. We live in the era of more modernized, you know, weapon systems. We live in the era of cyber terrorism and obviously terrorism itself. So NATO needs to modernize. Spending needs to go up for NATO. Europe needs to have more skin in the game. And, you know, Europe right now does not take our current president seriously. And the EU doesn't. The NATO doesn't. You know, under President Trump, they, they obviously did more, a lot more. But Biden's not really pushing NATO to do much. You know, and, and that is where American leadership is lacking here. You know, I think that we're just, I don't think we have, we, we understand truly the real intentions of Russia. The problem right now is that the current administration, and it's not fully its fault. The United States has had difficulty understanding what kind of country Russia is. We have had problems understanding this country since the 1940s, since the beginning yeah. of the Cold War. We still have no understanding of why they think the way they do and why they are the way they are. The United States has a stake in this. What Russia does matters. What happens in Ukraine matters. I think a military solution should be the last resort for any, you know, at all costs. I don't think military and U.S. boots on the ground is a good idea. I think that especially premature doing that prematurely, I think it would just rile up, you know, Russia more than it already is. But I think Ukraine is, unfortunately, it's, it's sad to say, but Ukraine is, is very defenseless. Ukraine, because it isn't a part of NATO, has to rely on support by whatever country wants to help it. That's really what it, what it, what it comes down to. And if Russia can go into Ukraine and do whatever it wants, then who's to say Russia doesn't have leverage over the other post-Soviet bloc states that are even smaller than Ukraine? I'm not saying it would invade those countries, but what if they threatened to cut off more natural gas? What if, you know, I mean, just last year, Russian oligarchs or, you know, Russian hackers got involved with Colonial Pipeline. That was off, you know, that went offline last year. Russian hackers got into our pipelines and Russia is, is thousands of miles away and they were still able right. to do that. Russia has the ability to commit, you know, mass cyber terrorism. They've been doing that for quite some time, and it's only going to get worse. So I don't really see anything good, obviously, coming out of any of this. Now, the other thing I want to mention is the reason the U.S. has a stake is because a lot of Russian troops are considering attacking Ukraine from the north through Belarus. Belarus is a former post-Soviet state. They've already, they've already enveloped the country on all three sides, Belarus, that is. They've deployed tanks, artillery, fighter jets, helicopters, advanced rocket systems, and thousands of troops are already there. Russia says it's for military exercises, but obviously it's not. I mean... right. Russia has about nine different separate military bases in Belarus right now. So that doesn't sound like a military exercise to me. If they're, if they're, they're, they're putting airborne troops in that region, anti-aircraft systems, highly specially trained, you know, trained um, force units in Belarus. And they have about, Ukraine is only about 8,500 of its own troops on its Northern border. Let me say that again. Ukraine only has 8,500 troops on the northern part of the country. Not even the eastern or the southern part of the country is protected right now. So if Russia was to go in, they'd go in, you know, it'd be easy. It'd be an easy steal. So practically, what would the 
for the average Ukrainian, how would their life change under a Russian regime? Uh, are, are the human, like, as far as human rights issues are concerned, like, would people be able to, is, is the, has the Ukrainian government proven itself a lot better than the Russian government as far as, uh, like, freedoms and human rights issues and things like that? Do you know what I'm saying? Yes, I do. So there's a problem with Ukraine. The problem in Ukraine is that the Ukrainian government for many years has suffered from a lot of corruption. So when there's a lot of corruption in your government, you know, it's very hard to maintain democratic institutions and for them to function properly. So it's really hard to, to protect people's liberties. It's really hard to do all those things. Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine believes in democratic values. It does. But it doesn't have the ability right now to defend people's freedoms and liberties because their democratic institutions are so plagued with corruption that it's it's very difficult to to not only fund its own priorities through its own parliament, it's difficult to protect its own people. Now, the, the I don't think Russia is going to annex the entire country of Ukraine. I think there would be a massive outcry, but not only an outcry. I mean it would probably spark a major regional war in Europe. You know, probably the biggest one we have seen technically since World War II, the biggest conflict. I like to say conflict. I don't want to say war. That exaggerates it. The biggest conflict since the Second World War. It would be a regional war, in my view, in Eastern Europe. I don't think it's going to annex the country. Putin knows that he can't rebuild the Soviet Union, but Putin still has an autocratic nature to himself because he knows the autocratic nature of Russia has always been there. Russia has always been autocratic from the years of Sardom, the serfs, to now. Russians are very autocratic by nature. They believe that without the Tsar or without a strong leader or without a Putin-like figure, Russia, there's chaos. You know, we, we have a very opposite way of thinking in the United States. Russia is very pro-government. They're for powerful governments, strong government. The United States, you know, obviously was born out of the very idea that we should be skeptical of governments. We should be skeptical of government's ability to defend and protect our rights and liberties. They think the opposite. They've always thought this way. They've always thought my liberty and my protection is going to be provided to me by the state because the state knows what's best. That's not Russian people's fault. That's just how they're all bred. That's how they're all they're raised. And that has been for generations. So. The average Ukrainian would see, you know, I think because Ukraine does not have the ability to really not only defend itself from the exterior part, but it can't defend itself from the inside because it's corrupt, plagued with, plagued with it, plagued with corruption. It doesn't have a, a very strong legal system a court system, you know, a a judiciary. Their independent judiciary is also plagued with corruption. I mean, this is what President Trump was talking about before he left office, about, you know, Ukraine having a corruption problem. This is what he was talking about, because it is true. And it is also very hard. It's also, I don't want to put all the blame on Ukraine. I don't want anybody to think that. But when Russia always threatens them, which they do, and, and Russia instigates and antagonizes Ukraine from the East, it is very hard to maintain democratic institutions and to protect your own people. When you, when you have, you know, the, you know, mother Russia just standing behind you, watching your every move, watching what you're doing, how you're dealing with your own citizens. It's very difficult. You know, and that's why they are essentially defenseless nearly. They're nearly defenseless. They can't even protect their entire country. They can only protect the northern part with not even 10,000 troops. I, I think the average Ukrainian's life would get worse economically and even worse politically. The Russian government has already you know, proposed plans to dis- depose of the government in Ukraine. The reason I know that is because British intelligence, just I think it was a couple of weeks ago, and they said that you know Russia has plans to reinstall a pro-Putin government in Kiev. 
that's a major deal. I mean, you're talking about an orchestrated coup d'etat in how in how um, valid do you think that that intelligence is? And I and I don't want to sound like an Alex Jones or something like that here, but do you think do you think it is credible, or do you think that could be the British government? saying that they caught wind of something so that they could get more help from NATO to uh, intervene militarily in the Ukraine? I would say it is it is pretty credible. Now, is it verifiable? That's the bigger question. Yeah. I don't know yet because Britain is the only country that came forward with this intelligence. Other countries didn't. I don't know why other countries didn't, but Britain did. Britain is also the same country that, that found intelligence, you know, that seriously considered, you know, the very idea that the coronavirus came out of a lab in the Wuhan province of China. And that is another, that's a whole other animal to deal with. And we won't in this podcast, clearly. But the reason that that matters is because Britain has a history of being credible when it comes to a lot of this intelligence gathering, you know, and so it's, it, to me, it's not, it's not, it's not impossible. It's not out of the realm for me to believe that Putin does not want to install a government friendly to Moscow in Kiev. It is not impossible. It is not without, it is not beyond reach. I mean, Putin invaded Ukraine in 2014 and they annexed Crimea through a referendum in Ukraine. By the way, Crimea has a lot of Russian-speaking Ukrainians. And a lot of Crimeans, people in Crimea, wanted to be a part of Russia. That's what we also don't really understand. Not all of them, by the way. Not all of them. But a lot of them did. That's why they voted in a referendum to join Russia. Now, what were we going to say? Just also, if you wanted to continue a little bit here. Oh, no, no. Please, please continue, yeah. Oh, okay. So Russia wants a pro-Putin government in Ukraine. I mean, to sum it up. And they will do whatever it takes to do that. If that means an orchestrated coup, that's what they're going to go forward with. And it, it's, not, it's not unbelievable to me that they would do that. I mean, they, they've already, you know, placed, you know, tens of thousands of Russian troops along the, the, not only the, Ukraine, the Ukrainian border, they're putting troops in Belarus, a different country, not even Ukraine. They're putting it in a country to the north of them. I mean, this to me is the equivalent to, you know, the First World War under the Schlieffen Plan, which was a plan by Russia, excuse me, not Russia, by Germany to invade certain countries in Europe. It was a major miscalculation. It was a failure, the Schlieffen Plan. But Germany had a similar plan that they would invade um, different countries in Europe by going through other countries to do so. I don't remember the full context of the Schlieffen plan, but it, it, it reminds me of, it, it is something that I get reminded by when I think of Russia coming from the north through Belarus to attack Poland from the north. It wouldn't be unbelievable to me either that if Russia places troops in the countries just to the south of Ukraine, they attack from the south as well. That was something that was very common that Germany did back in the First World War. You know, I mean, we saw a lot of that, too, during the Second World War. It's not unbelievable now that the Russian, you know, government is considering doing something very similar to what happened in the First World War and even Second. So I don't think that if Russia invades Ukraine, it's, it's going to be a direct invasion. I think that's what makes this situation different and worse is because they're going to go to other countries that are friendly to Moscow. They're going to use those countries as, 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 as buffer states to invade the country. It's like they're encircling it. And that is why this is a big deal. Russia is encircling Ukraine. It's not the same as 2014 when they said, oh, hey, hey, all you guys in Crimea, vote for this referendum to be a part of Russia. Okay, when you do that, you're going to be part of Russia. All done. It's not the same. Right. You know, that was, still, that was still bad. I mean, that was bad. But we haven't had a major nuclear power, you know, invade a country, you know, and encircle it. I don't think since, you know, since, since the, 19, the early 1990s when Iraq invaded Kuwait. 
I mean, it's been a while. It's been about three decades since something similar has happened on this magnitude and scale. I think the scale of this would be far worse, though, because Europe is a is a I don't want to say it's more important than the Middle East. I don't want to say that, but it, it's important for, for different reasons. Also, because Europe is, is, is got a lot of countries that, you know, produce, you know, that are responsible for a lot of, you know, of the world economy and the economic output. So that's why I think this is a big deal. And I think that the U.S. does have a stake. And I think that the average Ukrainian's life would get far worse in almost every way. And it would not be unbelievable to me to even think about a potential recession for Ukraine as well, because economic instability can spark a recession. That's how they start. You know, you would probably know more about that than I do <laughs> um, about recessions. But I think it's, it's, it looks gloomy. I think a lot of this is gloomy. So we're, we're coming to the end of our time. Um, so I, I have an interesting thought experiment for you that if you would indulge me, um, I'd appreciate it sure. if, if you would help me on this. Absolutely. What, what would the, the best case scenario be to come out of all of this? And what would be the, the worst case scenario uh, to come out of this? So if we, if we did exactly your, if you were, if you were Joe Biden right now, what would you do and what would be the best outcome that would lead to that? And then if I were president and said, you know, if you don't, as long as you don't touch any, you know, U.S. interest directly, then we're just going to, you know, sit this one out. What would be the, the worst case scenario to happen out of that? Well, I'll go with the, the best case first, if you don't mind. Sure. Here's what I think Biden needs to do. If I was him, I would I would have an actual summit with Putin, not the not the not the sham summit he had a year ago, where he went before a press conference and, and told the world that he gave Putin a, a grocery list of U.S. interests in, in countries he shouldn't play around with. That was naive, childish, and stupid of him to do. He needs to have an actual summit. I'm talking about a a Reagan Gorbachev type summit that Reagan had with 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 Gorbachev and Reykjavik in Iceland back in the 1980s. It needs to be that kind right. of summit, not the garbage you saw a year ago that literally resulted in absolutely us getting nothing out of it, which is what we got. We Let's, got nothing out of it. Can we pause for a second? Ronald Reagan was was a very sharp uh, president. And he was really good at getting what he wanted out of Gorbachev and just being like a friendly figure. And, you know, Gorbachev had a lot of uh, incentive to warm up to a person like Reagan. Do you think, one, that Joe Biden is sharp enough to be able to handle something like that? And B, do you think Putin would be anywhere near as warm towards uh, Biden as Gorbachev was to, to, towards Reagan? Okay, so to answer this, there's actually a couple moving parts. Reagan is nothing like Biden. So I, I, I'm not saying that you think he is. I'm saying Biden is a very different person than Reagan. And Reagan actually evolved over time about his views on Russia, believe it or not. That's the first thing I mentioned. Also, Gorbachev is not Putin either. So I'll explain the personalities. Reagan, early on in his career, was obviously, we know, he was the Cold War crusader, the, anti the ardent anti-communist, blah, 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 blah. Right? That was Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was the, was the man who called the Soviet Union the evil empire during a speech in the middle of the 1980s. Right. Ronald Reagan, over time, when, when Gorbachev came to power to lead the Soviet Union in 1985, which was basically the middle, it was the beginning, actually, of Reagan's second term, Russia was suffering economically pretty badly. I mean, there was an alcoholism problem in the country. The country was just, it was honestly just going to hell, to say it, economically. The socialist system was beginning to break down, and the country was suffering severely. So Reagan understood that it was, and so did Gorbachev when Gorbachev came to power in 85. Ronald Reagan said, I, while I believe you are an evil empire, I also believe I can get along with you and I can work with you. And Margaret Thatcher said the same thing. When she was asked by reporters in the 1980s, what do you think of the new guy in Moscow in regards to Gorbachev? She said, that's a man I can do business with. Margaret Thatcher, you know, right. and another ardent anti-communist said that. 
Because Gorbachev, while he was a communist, technically, he was a pragmatist. He, you know, went through the policies of Glasnost and Perestroika, which basically opened up, you know, transparent relations with, with the government, with the Russian government, with its people. And it also allowed for more free market policies. This isn't our, our communists discussing free market policies because Gorbachev understood there needed to be something to happen. If the socialist system was going to break down, which it was, then right. we needed to find a way to fix the Russian economy. And he believed that free market principles and free market ideas would help with that. And by the way, that was one of the major reasons the Soviet Union collapsed was because the system was so broken the free market economy just allowed it to give way finally and allow it to all collapse. Because when you allow individuals to have an incentive in the economy to work and to get rewarded, socialism breaks down. Because socialism is a system where you don't get incentive. Everyone's mm-hmm. the same. There's no incentive to work harder or work more or work better. It's it's so, inherently unstable. It, it, it's it, that's a, just it's the a, way, yeah. It's unstable. It doesn't take into account individual initiative individual ability or individual potential it doesn't and that's why it's right. it's an in, it's not a humanistic approach to anything obviously we know that right. so reagan so biden does not think the same way reagan does because biden just sees things as such he sees this through such an archaic view russia bad 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 and we shouldn't talk to them and we shouldn't negotiate with them we shouldn't bring them to the table on anything the problem with that is that that doesn't make it better. You, you can't tell a country, because you're bad, we're not going to talk with you. You have to talk to your adversaries. That doesn't mean you agree with their type of government or what they're doing. It just means that you believe that you can, you know, it's like what Ronald Reagan said. Ronald Reagan said, you don't reach peace. You know, you, you don't reach peace. You know, conflict. You know, peace is not reached by the absence of conflict. Peace is reached, you know, because there's conflict. This is like paraphrasing what he said, obviously. You, you get a peaceful agreement, you know, through conflict. You know, he believed that it's not the absence of conflict. It's about solving conflict through peaceful means. You know, and the problem with Biden is Biden believes if there cannot be any peace, then we can't talk to you at all. That's not, that doesn't work. It doesn't work. Reagan understood that. And Reagan went from saying Russia was an evil empire to we need to get along with them. We need to do better with this. And because he believed that the Soviet Union not, you know, collapsed. I mean, there was other reasons it collapsed. The socialism didn't work. The U.S. was spending more money on national defense than Russia was. And it just did allow the system to explode. Biden does not have the same thinking patterns that Reagan did. So Biden is not going to make the situation better. That's the first part. The second part, Gorbachev is a different person from Vladimir Putin. Gorbachev saw that Russia was suffering in the 1980s, and he wanted to do something about it. He wanted to do something economically about it and make the economy more free. Putin's the opposite. Putin believes the Soviet Union should have never collapsed. I'm not saying Gorbachev wanted the Soviet Union to collapse. It's not Gorbachev didn't want it to collapse. He wanted it to evolve and change, you know. Everybody puts these words on things without really saying what their true intention. Gorbachev wanted the Soviet Union to become more democratic. You know, Putin does not want that. Putin wants it to stay autocratic and become even more autocratic under his rule. A lot of pro-Russia figures, well, actually, a lot of political officials in Russia through the Duma, which is their legislative body, support Putin. You know, they're not really supportive of his political party. I mean, he's an independent now, I believe. But he used to be a part of a very pro-nationalist party called the United Russia, which was a very pro-Putin party. So a lot of Russians are more interested in Putin, the person. They see him as the strong man. They don't really see his political philosophy as something to engage with. Russians, in other words, just to say, put it quite frankly, they don't care about ideology. They care about personality. And Gorbachev cared more about changing the ideology to achieve a certain goal. So Putin is not the same as Gorbachev. And Biden is not the same as Reagan. Because they have so they have such different ways of what how they want to go about solutions, how they want to how they went about problems. Biden's view of, of going about problems is outdated. 
It doesn't work. It is an old way of thinking. You know, it's, you know, I, it's the same way, you know, with China. Biden needs to have an actual summit with Xi Jinping. The same, to the same magnitude that Nixon had with, um, what was it? I think it was, Mao? Um, Mao, Mao Zedong. I almost said Deng Xiaoping, but then I realized that was the wrong guy. <laughs> wrong other <wrong laughs> <kind of> communist. <laughs> you know, that's what we need to be at. We don't need to have a, a, another silly summit just for, you know, television, you know, ratings. And Biden, I don't think, has any understanding of this, not only of the Russian problem. He has an outdated, it's actually, it's very scary. He has an outdated view of international relations. He has an outdated view of it. He has a very neoconservative view that doesn't, it doesn't apply anymore. Yeah. You know? And he doesn't get that. He doesn't understand you have to talk with your adversaries. That doesn't, like I said, it doesn't mean you have to agree with them, but you have to be able to do business with them and work with them. And I don't see this getting better because Biden is unable to do that because his way of thinking is not going to change. He came to power after 47 years in government with the same thinking. It's not going to change all of a sudden now. And Putin's not going to change. Putin has no interest in change. But they're just different people, different characters, different ways of going about things. Um, so let me ask you uh, this, the, the second part of the kind of dichotomy that I set out. What would be the worst case scenario if, if I were the pre- if, if I was running the country right now and I was like, yeah, let's. I'm not going to send one one dollar to Ukraine. I'm not going to send one munition. I'm not going to send one American troop. No matter what, you know, like Russia, U- U.S. Go, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Well, yeah, just uh, take an absolute hands off approach, and and I, I I really don't care what's going on there. It doesn't affect you know Americans directly. We have our own problems here. We're not going to worry about that. What would be the the absolute worst case scenario? So. Just one last thing to mention, because this is also tied into uh, the worst case scenario part. But I think that Biden not only needs to have a summit to help solve the problem when it comes to like, you know, a good case scenario, he needs to be able to to tell Russia, hey, here's a deal we'll make with you. We are going to allow Ukraine to be a part of NATO, but we're also going to allow you to be a part of the partnership for peace. So you get a say at the table in European affairs once and for all. I think that's a good deal for Russia, and that's part of a good case scenario. Obviously, that's not going to happen, though. That's just, it's just not. The bad case scenario, to get off what you're saying, to stem off your question, is the United States to not only do nothing, but to go about this as the same thinking as Biden's always thought, the neoconservative way of thinking of Russia bad, sanction Russia, now the, you know, sanction Russia, but don't even have a conversation and don't send weapons, don't send, you know, troops, don't send diplomatic or economic aid. I think that would be a worst case scenario because Ukraine is already at a disadvantage here. You, you know, you're not all the European, you know, countries want to go to the aid of Ukraine, especially countries that rely on Russian oil and gas. Right. And the United States, I think the, what it could, what it, here's how we could screw this up. If we wait too long to send U.S. troops in the case that diplomatic negotiations continue to fail. They're, as of right now, our, dip, our diplomatic relations with Moscow have been failing. They're not working. Moscow doesn't care. They're not taking into our account our interests. That's the first part. Second part is Russia. Russia does not want. Now, the, the United States, in my personal opinion, should not send troops unless it's a last resort. It looks to me, unfortunately, that it is going to get to that point. If we, I think we should, I think that we should be able to send troops early on if we notice early on that that's what's going to happen, what, what's happening here. 
and we wait too late and our European allies do not come to the aid of Ukraine, it will involve it will result in a in a invasion. And not only an invasion, we don't know what magnitude. Will it be an invasion just of Ukraine? Will it be an invasion? It looks to me it's gonna be through a different country, through Belarus. And what if you what if the Kremlin says, Oh, wait, all these countries aren't gonna help? So not only can we, you know, go through Belarus, the country to the south is gonna help us invade Ukraine. Why not? They're relying on Russian gas. You know, they don't they don't want, you know, escalating tensions with us. Russia's gonna take advantage of the West. They've been taking advantage for years. And I think that a worst case scenario, another worst, you know, another part of the worst case scenario part is that Russia takes advantage of this moment. And they very well are. They very well are, and they very well have a lot of leverage in this because the United States is slow to respond. The United States is very reactive, not proactive. And I understand why. I'm not a warmonger, but I'm not for stupid ideas and stupid policies and more importantly, dumb approaches to things. Our approach to Russia by default already is a dumb approach of, of no talking, of just sanctions. Well, except on, you know, Russian oil and, you know, and gas and the pipeline, you know, sanctions on that. No, those are bad. You know, whatever. Joe Biden could be pro-Russia, I guess, on certain issues like the pipeline. <laughs> you know, the hypocrisy there. I, I think that would be part of a worst case scenario if we wait too long, especially if Europe doesn't come to the aid and the rest of Europe doesn't come to the aid. Um, militarily. And I, I think that another problem here, a lot of European countries are not getting involved diplomatically right now. I think Britain was, but that's about it. Nice. France is kind of hesitant to as well. I don't know why that is, but France is a little bit. But, you know, as of right now, it looks pretty bad, too, because Germany, the largest economy in Europe, you know, is, is really not interested in what's going on in Ukraine. They're working against it. They're working to get other countries not involved, to stay away. So I think so it's, uh, it's going to resolve pretty badly. So we're coming to the end of, uh, of our time here. Um, so I like to ask all of my guests uh, if you could leave uh, one other thing for the one or two people that may listen to this. <laughs> uh, what, what would be your, your, your last thing that you want to leave my listeners with? The last thing I would say is that the U.S. needs to get smart on Russia. We need to become more open with our adversaries and have them have a seat at the table. We need to start talking again. Because the way we go about you know, diplomatic relations and negotiations hasn't worked. We live in a different time now. And I think that Americans, I understand a lot of Americans don't want to get involved. But I think that we will have to get involved in whatever capacity it may be if we are too slow to, to act, if, if, especially of the fact that we already just don't have an understanding of the situation in its full um, magnitude. I think Americans, I don't, I'm not saying we need to send troops immediately. I'm not saying American blood needs to be shed, you know, and lives need to be lost. But I think we need to pay more attention because international affairs affects domestic affairs. You know, just, just, I mean, the colonial pipeline situation from a year ago is, is no better example. When oil, you know, oil lines literally shut off along the eastern seaboard of the U.S. because of Russian hackers. That's international affairs affecting domestic affairs. You know, if, if anybody behind a computer can do that in a foreign country a thousand miles away, why is it unbelievable? that Russia couldn't have just invade whatever country it wants. Or, you know, I think, to, you know, the viewers need to be more open-minded. Not only open-minded, but they need to be more, they need to think more out of the box. And Americans need to start doing that. Because we, and whether we do or not is up to us. But what Russia does is up to them. Because our allies, especially like, you know, not our allies, our adversaries such as Russia 
can take advantage of this moment, can take advantage of just the naivete, the, na the naive actions of Washington and the naive thinking of Washington and, you know, this archaic way of thinking about how we go about international affairs. Well, Patrick, thank you so much uh, for having this conversation with me. It was very enlightening. And uh, you definitely made me think about a lot of things that I never would have thought of before. And I hope the people listening to this will as well. All right. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.